This week, we celebrate the quintessential American holiday, the 4th of July, Independence Day. The independence we won so many years ago has been maintained and strengthened generation after generation by Americans who have served in our armed forces, often giving the ultimate sacrifice, and we owe them, every one of them, gratitude for the freedoms we enjoy today. In this episode of The Hot Dish, I wanted to focus on a war that still is a bit raw, and I'm not sure it won't ever be. Vietnam really defined a generation, and the war's effects on those who served have reverberated for decades. Even today, we're still trying to fully grasp the impact of post-traumatic stress and other conditions our Vietnam veterans suffer at elevated rates. During my time in the Senate, one of the things that has impacted me the most was giving a series of 15 floor speeches in the United States Senate over the course of six months to honor North Dakota's fallen Vietnam service members, pay our respects, and make sure that the legacy of these brave North Dakotans live on. Today's episode is a way to continue that effort. Today, I'll talk to a well-known documentarian, a filmmaker who has brought new attention to this conflict and has encouraged an important discussion about war and our treatment of veterans. And then I'll speak with a North Dakotan who served three tours of duty in Vietnam. We'll hear about his service in the conflict, his service to his community once he returned home, and his service to the Vietnam veterans of my state. to have documentary filmmaker Ken Burns join us. Ken has been making films for over 40 years, and he's been honored with dozens of major awards, including 15 Emmy Awards, two Grammy Awards, and two Oscar nominations. His films, like The Civil War, The Roosevelt's, The National Parks, and Defying the Nazis, have been incredibly influential in the way we remember history. One of his most recent projects, entitled The Vietnam War, really captivated my attention, as I'm sure it did for some of you. As we continue to live up to our promises to our veterans, Ken's series has put a spotlight on this generation of service members and the trauma they endured. Welcome, Ken Burns. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your series, The Vietnam War. Those of us who grew up, and for me it was grade school and then later high school, watching this on our television and seeing um, the fear in the eyes of my classmates as those draft numbers were called. It's so important that my children see this, and they would not get that impact if it weren't for your series. And so thank you for your storytelling ability, but thank you for honoring this generation of American veterans. It's been too long, and I am thrilled to have you on the Thank you, on Senator, so much. I'm honored that you asked me to participate. I couldn't agree with you more. If we don't know where we've been, that's called our past. We can't possibly know where we are, and more importantly, where we may be going. And there's so many lessons from the Vietnam War, not the least the personal ones, but the larger political ones that remind us, particularly in these fractious days, how it is important, as, as you conduct yourself, to be there in the middle and to try to gather everybody together under one uh, roof and remind us that, you know, as the historian Arthur Schlesinger said, we suffer today from too much pluribus and not enough <laughs> We have to remember to be about the one 
fun and to forget the kind of tribal instincts that betray that sense of the possibility of the United States. You do that in, in what you do, and I think just the work that your office does in connecting with the Vietnam vets and having a conversation about what happened was what, on our scale, we were trying to do as well. Yeah, I, I kept reminding people on the floor, this was my war. This is the war that shaped my opinions about war and about veterans. And, and it was so just watching you talk about, work, interview and talk about this experience with so many veterans. But I want to start out by telling you how important the beginning was, the geopolitical beginning. And, yes. you know, that the fact that you included the, uh, the, the war in Korea, which is so important and relevant now and and talked about the the million you know a million chinese dying in that war and that gives you a different sense of the impact today that and the sense that the chinese have about north korea and i was just struck by the fact that you just looked at that whole region to begin with well, well, thank you. You know, I, I think that too often we live in a media culture that should be able to deliver us instantaneous information about everything and does that we find our own understanding sort of getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And it felt really important for us to put it into that, as you said, geopolitical context, to understand that some of the ways in which we were drawn in, lured in by the French uh, to take over for them in Vietnam had to do with the Korean example and they were sort of saying, see, it works. Geography is destiny, but the Korean uh, area is a peninsula. There's seas on three sides, and Vietnam does not have that. And so one of the great failures in our, in our strategic, even tactical thinking is that we just didn't anticipate what we were watching happen to our French um, comrades, uh, which is why I called that episode Deja Vu, because it seemed a hundred times Something happened to the French that was going to, in 10 or 12 years, happen to us, and no one was smart enough at every level in any, any, any party. Remember, these are mistakes yeah. made by Truman, a Democrat, by Eisenhower, a Republican, by Kennedy, a Democrat, Johnson, a Democrat, and Nixon, a Republican, and even mistakes at the very, very end by Republican Gerald Ford. So you have essentially failures at, at the highest level, failing to see the warning signs. The bridge is out. Every normal, mm -hmm. law-abiding person is going to put on the brakes. We didn't put on the brakes. And it doesn't matter what political camp you're in. This, we, we did not have um, an agenda in this film. We wanted to tell the story, and at the heart of it has to be the story of veterans. You know, Tim O'Brien, who wrote the magnificent uh, book, The Things They Carried, said, you can interview me, but whatever you do, interview a gold star mother and we ended up finding an extraordinary woman in upstate new york and her daughter a gold star daughter and it really makes real and we remind us what the human cost is of war and we also talked to north vietnamese soldiers and north vietnamese civilians south uh, vietnamese guerrillas the viet cong but mm -hmm. also our allies the people who often get forgotten in this south vietnamese soldiers and the civilians in in saigon that were sometimes protesting what their government was was doing so you have a a multi-perspective story and then all of a sudden you think you know it's like triangulation in astronomy yes. if you can get you fix a few other points you can more clearly know the subject and we felt we could do that by by 
understanding that particularly in war and particularly in this Vietnam War, there's more than one truth, and you can see it from many different angles. Well, a- absolutely, and and the discussion of the religious conflict going on in South Vietnam and how that played into uh, an erosion of support for the South Vietnamese government, and and it was it it was the stories that I think. Over a period of time, you forget. You forget. You remember the wall, and you remember how it was feeling in in our country. You remember, you know, the fear that we had. You also remember the conflict. But I think this this story was told with such an incredible balance of understanding the Viet Cong, understanding the North Vietnamese and the motivation they had, and understanding um, what was happening in South Vietnam, but also understanding at home. I could not tell you how important it was to tell the story of those young soldiers, those young men, some leading men and still today yes. weeping on your program as they talk about the challenges that they had and the and the sorrow that they feel even today as raw as it was the day they lost their soldiers. This is the thing about war. You know, it's the worst thing that human beings do and it predictably uh, reveals um, the worst side of us. But what I think we're always unprepared for is how much it also reveals the best side of us. And obviously there's courage and there's bravery on on all sides, even among uh, people who chose to oppose the war. There was a certain amount of bravery to go against in the beginning that sort of tide of public opinion or a soldier coming home turning against the war for that reason or just meeting the guys who just charged up a hill and then you retreated off it. You didn't hold it. One one of our Marines said in frustration, war is a real estate business, and you don't like getting wounded retaking the same hill yeah. uh, twice, getting wounded twice. So you, there was so many failures, but we felt it was important not to just dwell on those, to look for these great human moments of, of connection, of, of reconciliation, mm-hmm. uh, of kindness that, that takes place in war, and, and also great emotion. And I think what we begin to realize is that memory is present. Maybe we came home, maybe we were able to lock it away in some dark closet in our brains. Maybe we couldn't and suffered from what we now call PTSD, but you know the Greeks called it called it divine madness. The, in the Civil War, they called it the soldier's art. It's been called combat fatigue, or it's been called shell shock. We gave it a scientific name, which sort of helped us, but also hindered us. It made it harder for us to really reach those people to have it. And so our great privilege was to just be listeners, whoever it was, from you know the bravest Marine and an Army guy or pilot to somebody who had chosen. Uh, to oppose the war, and, and more importantly, all the gradations in between, to just listen and bear witness to what they saw, not what the textbook said, not what the journalists said, though we had journalists and we relied on scholars. It was, what was the human experience of that? And when Americans talk about Vietnam, they more often than not, very understandably, talk just about themselves. But this is the story of three countries, a winner, North Vietnam, which became Vietnam, a loser, us, but also a country, South Vietnam, that went out exi- went out of existence. And we often fail to appreciate the wide diaspora of South Vietnamese mm-hmm. American citizens throughout the United States who fought bravely with us uh, and then were left suddenly without a country and coming to a country, some of them, that 
didn't, for obvious reasons, want to deal with them. So there's so many layers of complexity that we felt that it was so easy to, to do, make the facile decision and say, this was right, this was wrong, you're wrong, this person was right, and just say there, there were mistakes made in the anti-war movement, there were mistakes made by policymakers, there were mistakes made by presidents, there were mistakes made by them. You know, we, we look at our own My Lai massacre, but they, they, they uh, killed in cold blood men, women, and children after the Tet Offensive. Mm-hmm. Almost 3,000 human beings were murdered at point-blank range uh, as blood enemies of the state. They just happened to be South Vietnamese who were working for the United States government or working for the South Vietnamese government. So, you know, we were equal opportunity condemners, but we were also willing to say, What's your story? I want to hear what it's like to be in battle. I want to hear what it's like to see the the the, the guy tread up the step to your house in Tar- Saratoga Springs to mm-hmm. deliver you the worst news you'll ever get. And how grateful we are to these Gold Star mothers who don't need to share the worst day of their life, but do knowing that we'll, we'll bring comfort and connection to everybody else. And it goes back to this Unum idea. Mm-hmm. We tell the stories of our past in order to stitch together our present and reimagine American possibilities. And, you know, this is what you do every day in your way. This is what I do every day in my way as a filmmaker, was just say, look, we're in this together. How do we go forward? How do we find realistic solutions? What do we learn from this? What do we take away? Let's be out of the blame game. Let's just say this happened and and figure out how not to make those mistakes again. You know, when we did the um, the killed in action um, speeches on the floor, um, we had a gold star mother tell me that we were the first people who really spoke her son's name in in those many generations, and it and um, we had another. Uh, parent uh, brother tell us a story about how his mother insisted that she be buried with um, her soldier's uh, uh, purple heart. And as I told these stories on the floor of the Senate, I, you know, usually there isn't anyone there, but I really talked to the pages who are all juniors in high school and all bright young people who are doing incredible things in their community. And, and I think they started doing the math, and they realized that would have been me in two years. Yeah. And, and, and to have them understand the level uh, of sacrifice and the fear, you know, that, that uh, an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old would experience in the jungles of Vietnam. It was just really, it's so important that you tell this story and that we insist that our children watch and that our children understand not only the historical complexities, no, of the, the story, but the human, yeah. the human sacrifice. That's exactly right. You know, one of the, you know, we had huge numbers, tens of millions of Americans uh, tuned in. It's been in a hundred countries. Uh, we made a Vietnamese version, and the Vietnamese uh, didn't block it. Uh, and so there are millions of Vietnamese are seeing for the first time their losses, hearing about seeing their dead for the first time. You know, this was for them a singular victory of the capital P people. They're still a communist regime you know, a very important economic and strategic power for us, but nonetheless a a communist regime. And now they're hearing human dimensions because we asked them questions that we asked our Marines and GIs. What did it feel like? Who did you lose? What did your mother feel? Or if you were a mother, what was it like to have your your son go? And then all of a sudden you begin to realize uh, the common humanity that we have. And, And for all of the good reviews and all of the numbers and awards and things like that, the most satisfying thing, Senator, is almost every damn out in the world, somebody will come up, and the variation is like this. 
my husband, my my father, my son, my brother, my uncle was there, and he hasn't talked about it. But we all sat down and watched your series, and now he's talking. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need to do. Obviously, this extends well beyond Vietnam because we have a lot of talking to do, not yelling, not shouting, not condemning, but talking, as you do with the people of your state, and, and say, look, we can get more things done together than we can by these divisions. And I thought Vietnam was an, was an allegory of what was going on now. You know, people like to say history repeats itself or we're condemned to repeat what we don't remember. And I don't think that's true. Everything is unique. Every moment is new. That's what our creator has delivered for us. But human nature doesn't change. And so Mark Twain once said, um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And if you look closely enough at all the, the, the what was going on in the Vietnam period, with all its divisions, with all its misunderstandings, we are given the recipe of how to stitch ourselves back together or the recipe of how we can continue towards further disunion. And I don't think there's a person within the sound of my voice or your stronger voice from your position in the United States Senate that doesn't realize that what we want is, of course, the former. I think I think for so many um, young people, they're asking questions. What about what about? And it's 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 so interesting to me because we think of a, a, a veteran as somebody who is in a, a now Vietnam veteran or or perhaps the first Gulf War. But we have 30, 32-year-old veterans. We're losing our veterans in record numbers, um, death to suicide. And and if we're going to, as a society, really honor their service, we have to uh, help share their sacrifice by um, uh, working to understand um, their their challenges as they as they transition to to pay that ultimate price. You know, I I point out that in. Uh, you know what what uh, George Washington said, which is we can never be a country that's willing to defend itself if we don't treat our veterans right. And right. and I think that this is a a veterans group that has not been treated well. And in fact, many many as I work on the VA issues that I work on, many many veterans tell me the last thing when I took off that uniform that I ever wanted to acknowledge is that I was a veteran. I would not have accessed those services. The Vietnam War. The basic advice was. Grow your hair, take off your uniform, and don't keep your head down. And, of course, that is the breeding ground of the the depression and, and all of the terrible rates of suicide we find among our military. And here's why I think it's happening. You know, in World War II and, and Vietnam, we had a draft. And after the early deferments that made it possible for being married or, or particularly going to school kept you out of the draft, and it just it, – it, it, the disproportionate burden fell to working class uh, folks who didn't have the luxury of the educational deferment when that was eliminated everybody had skin in the game and then and then a majority of americans were against that war now whether that's just self-interest or moral changes we don't have to say that but right now most americans don't have skin in the game and we have a uh, we have a separate military class the the best in the world that that suffers its losses apart and alone from most of us. And so no wonder we have these rates of suicide because we, the American people, not having skin in the game, 
forget that we just expect them to do their job, and they live in a kind of isolation among us. And so I am sick and tired of saying, thank you for your service. In a way, that's a way to say, put a period at the end of a sentence and turn away. I have now tried to discipline myself to not say thank you for your service, which is, of course, what I am, thankful for their service, but to say whatever veteran, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, first Gulf War, second Gulf War, Afghanistan, whatever it might be, to say, welcome home. What can I do for you? That opens a sentence up. It doesn't close it down and says, we know that you're doing something that most of the rest of us, you know, I would stand up in a class uh, when I was, you know, in a school auditorium while I was promoting the Vietnam film and also the film we made on World War II back in 2007. I'd say, how many of you know somebody in Iraq, family member or close, close friend? Maybe 2% of the hands would shoot at. I said, now I'd like every male 18 and over to stand up. And every male would stand up. And then I'd say, you're all in the, in the, in the Army. Mm-hmm. And, and suddenly people suddenly realize how little we are connected to what we should be connected to, which is uh, when we make a decision to go to war, we ought to be all behind. We've got to have all of our oars in the, wa- in the water pulling in the same direction. And yeah. I'm afraid a lot of us are just enjoy the luxury of not even having to complicate, uh, contemplate that option. Well, that saying thank you for your service does not get the American public off the hook nope. for for the um, uh, continuing obligation that we have to uh, defend our veterans and to make sure that they're entitled to their their uh, uh, benefits. But more importantly, to to really, you know, I, I, I like to tell people, you know, don't just sit home on Memorial Day. Don't just sit home on no. Veterans Day. Get out there. You know, when, when you go to a ceremony, which I do every year, both Veterans and Memorial Day, and you look out and everybody there is 60 years or older, yeah. I just, I grieve. I grieve yeah. because I don't think we are raising a younger generation who has that number one pride pride in the willingness of a uh, and awe in the willingness of people who do this work of, of our military That's and right. our veterans but i also think that they don't have a sense of of um that common purpose. You know, one of the things I talk about with World War II, which is my dad's generation, I say they took off the uniform, but they found, they built a country. Yeah. They built a country after they took off their uniform. They served on the school board. They they did all this remarkable investment in our country. And now we are, we, you know, we're slackers compared to that. That's exactly right, and we're squandering it away. We live in a media culture where everything is red state or blue state. We live in a computer culture where it's binary. Everything is either a one or a zero. And in a rational world, one and one always equals two. But the thing that compels us, sacrifice, patriotism, love of community, love of country, love of family, our faith, our art, all of these things that motivate us actually are about an equation that is much more mysterious. And that's one and one equaling three. That's the unum that comes from the pluribus. And that's what we've got to be working. Then we can rebuild our country. But you got to put down that tablet. you got to put down that phone. you got to engage. I mean, we call it social media but it's not. It's asocial because people don't even know how. We don't teach civics anymore, and civics isn't just 100 senators, 435 representatives. Civics is how you get things done together in person. 
It's not how you network. It's not how you troll. It's not how you, you know, have an emoji. It's like, wow, you know, we've got a problem. Uh, you know, I live in a tiny little town in New Hampshire. I'm talking to you from the town I've lived in for almost 40 years. And we have big debates about whether we're going to pay for this pumper, the new fire station mm-hmm. pumper. You know, are we going to get that? Uh, what, what, which road is going to get the attention this year? And we're, we're involved in these discussions, and we've got to find a way to reinvigorate our younger folks with that, to set aside their devices for a little bit and get involved with the rest of us. You know, one thing that I, I an example that I give, and I grew up in a town of 90 people, and I said, you know, at the coffee shop, there's that one table, mm-hmm. and they, they're usually veterans, and yep. they they can solve all the problems of the world if people would just listen. You know, they've, they've got great ideas. And yeah, I exactly say, right. you know, there's Democrats and Republicans I said, in my world, right? But I said, you know, and they can disagree about the issues of the day, but they've figured out how to buy the fire truck to defend the community as a community. And we've lost that commonality of purpose. And and it is a and it ties back into the issue you and I are talking about, because when we lose our commonality of purpose, when we lose our sense of self-sacrifice for, for the rest of our community, we dishonor every man and woman who ever put on a uniform who believed in that service and, and who was willing to... For, was willing to lay down their life for the principles that we hold dear. Yeah, I agree completely. We have to find a way to uh, begin to rebuild and be suspicious of those who appeal to uh, otherness uh, because we're all in this same boat all well, across this beautiful country of ours. We are all in this same boat. Well, I can't let you go without you telling me what's your next project. Oh, you know what? I felt that <laughs> there was a seed of hope in the Vietnam film that we were speaking to those people who had made the sacrifices, who had who had borne the, the burden of battle, and that we could honor them, and that we're now doing a history of country music. And it's the music of the people who feel like their stories aren't told, and they it's this great, pure American sound, three chords and the truth, that speaks about the elemental stuff of life, of, of birth, the joy of birth, the sadness of death, of getting married, of, of, of the problems that, that happen, of, of all of these things that are just common to everyone. And I realize, you know, it, somebody, uh, the novelist Richard Powers said, the best argument in the world won't change a single mind. The only thing that could do that is a good story. Yeah. So I'm devoting my life to trying to tell good stories in American history in the hope that we can all suddenly realize, oh, you know what? We're all sitting around the same campfire. We actually believe in all of the of the things that we think that the other doesn't believe in. And when we look at them, all of a sudden, they're not so other. Well, so I applaud what you're doing, Senator, and I'm so honored that you would give me um, a couple minutes to have a oh. conversation with you. We appreciate all that you're doing for the veterans and trying to keep their memory and, and, and their health uh, going, and, and I'll do whatever I can to serve um, that agenda for you. Yeah, well, the honor is all mine, but I do have to tell you my favorite line ever in a country western song, and you should ask people just randomly, that those of us who like country western music... My favorite line ever is my, my, uh, my wife ran off with my best friend, and I miss him. Yeah, we have that in the film. We have that in the that film. Is, it's, it's a classic, hilarious. isn't it? You know? And there was another one, thank God for you and Greyhound, you're gone. <laughs> <laughs> and one may be appropriate for some of your uh, constituents, um, a don't roller skate in a buffalo field. <laughs>
Well, listen, good luck with your next project. And um, thank you, thank you, thank you for being such an amazing storyteller and telling a story. You know, frequently we talk about that World War II, the greatest generation they've been labeled. But this is a remarkable generation of Mm. men and women who fought for our country, who got forgotten, who um, didn't, didn't volunteer, many of them, but yet they served us. And they deserve a place of great honor in our memory, and you made sure that their stories are, are, are told. Thank you so much, Sandra. We, we, we're really honored to have this conversation with you and to be able to show, share these stories with our fellow citizens, and that's all it is. We're singing over an electronic campfire, maybe, but it's the same way, singing the epic verses of America, and we hope to awaken those in the younger generation who have to pick up their voices and, and join with us in the anthems that we share in common. Terrific. Thank you. I hope someday to meet you in person. I look forward to it. Stop anytime. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Next up is Dan Stenvold, speaking to us today from Park River, North Dakota, where he serves as our mayor. Dan has served his community and his country in numerous ways over the years, including three tours of duty in Vietnam, 402 days total, with U.S. Army artillery units. Since then, Dan has worked to better the lives of all veterans, serving as president of North Dakota Vietnam Veterans of America and bringing awareness to the issue of Agent Orange and its lasting impact. It was an honor to tell some of Dan's story on the Senate floor a few years ago, and I'm pleased to have Dan on the line to talk firsthand about these important issues. Dan, welcome to the Hot Dish, and again, thank you on the 4th of July and the 4th of July week for your incredible service to our country. You know, one of the things that that I talk about often is uh, what I see in communities across North Dakota is these amazing group of veterans, but I I like to say they took off the uniform, but they didn't stop service. And you are an actual example of that, whether it's serving as a mayor or serving as an advocate for Vietnam vets, um, raising awareness on Agent Orange. You are really quite an amazing uh, example of what it means to continue that service, and I'm honored to know you, and I'm grateful that you could join us today to talk about your service in Vietnam, but also talk about what, um, you know, what your reflections are this many years uh, later. That younger generation, you know, those kids who are just coming up now understand the sacrifice of your generation. And so, Dan, thanks so much, and maybe you could Give us a little bit of information about your service and let us know um, what you're what you're doing now, what your work right now is as you help veterans, um, Vietnam veterans, uh, as they age into this system. Well, thank you, Senator. I'm flattered and probably blushing a little bit. Everything that I try to do is it's not about me. But uh, in Vietnam, I had to grow up in a hurry as an 18-year-old in a combat zone. Um, it's certainly a lot different than attending your first quarter of college. Mm. And that was very evident when I returned home. I ran with the kids that I graduated with, and I felt like a 40-year-old with them, just from my experiences. The experiences that I had in Vietnam were tough at the time, but they shaped who I am today. 
Well, I, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt about it. Anyone who knows you knows that that you proudly uh, salute the flag and proudly uh, uh, remind people about the service of your generation. You are an incredible leader, and we've been together many times on many occasions as you remember, as you create events that uh, help us educate the, the younger generation. So if, if, if we could, if there were 20-year-olds who are listening, who weren't even born, um, uh, uh, when you started your service, um, what would you tell them? What, what was that like being in the Vietnam era and, and recognizing that, that this war wasn't the most popular of all wars, but yet uh, uh, people still put on that uniform? I think it's a little that the challenge is different um, today for um, our vets who, um, you know, you can't walk through an airport anymore where you don't say thank you for your service and everyone acknowledges it. That just didn't happen for our Vietnam vets. And I think people don't understand the kind of trauma that was experienced in Vietnam, but then the trauma coming home to a culture that and, and to, a, in many ways, a, a communities, not in North Dakota, but communities across the country who did not welcome home our vets. Right. When I, you know, I went in 1968, went to Seattle, Washington, and the, and the protests weren't going on as, as much as they were, but I came home three times and went back to Vietnam, and each time seemed to be a little worse. The first time wasn't too bad, and then the second time, when, before I left my to get on the air, in the airport, the, the, my sergeant told me, you should probably take off your uniform and wear civilian clothes. And, you know, I, I didn't. And I made it to Denver, and then people were hollering at me, baby killers and all this stuff. So I went into a store in Denver, the airport, bought some civilian clothes, changed, put my uniform in the garbage can. Hmm. How old were you when that happened, Dan? I, I would have been 19 then. Isn't that incredible? You think about think about that experience of a 19-year-old already, you know, battle-hardened, coming home and and just being grateful to come home and see your family and, you know, be back in the United States only to find uh, this this kind of um, unwelcomed event. It, it's yeah. it's mind-boggling. So I, so I was very proud of my service then, and I still am. Yeah, you should be. Our, you should be. Service. Our society was just really messed up at that time, I think. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I think one of the things that you have done um, so courageously is stand up for Vietnam vets today, the ones who are suffering from the effects of Agent Orange that are suffering now as they um, uh, retire. They're starting to reflect back on their life. We see higher rates of post-traumatic stress being exhibited um, among Vietnam vets. Can you tell us a little bit about your work today with Vietnam vets and and um, what more you, you would hold? Hope would happen in our. Um, uh, what more you hope would happen in our society to uh, to recognize their service, honor their service, but also honor the commitment to their health care. And I've kind of branched out where I've, I've done a lot of research and study to try to help the younger veterans. But what right now it is really or one of our biggest problems, and we don't know how to fix it. There's 22 deaths by veterans every day. I mean, that's that's totally unacceptable. We've got a Toxic Exposure Act that passed, I think, last year, and it needs some funding for our family members that are getting sick. This 
Agent Orange and the oxygen from the Agent Orange is already in four generations of our kids. So they're going to need help, and there just seems to be no funding there. Yeah, I've got Blue Water Navy veterans calling me all the time that are sick and dying from the same stuff from the dioxin, the Agent Orange. I, I guess they would, the Congress just passed a bill on that. Hopefully that goes someplace. Another thing I think the VA needs is some stability at the top. When you have a new secretary every few months, that doesn't help. Mm-hmm. You got to get some. We got to get somebody in there that's good enough to be there more than a few months. I, I couldn't agree more. I think I think that one of the things people don't understand about Agent Orange and this toxic exposure is that it doesn't just affect the Vietnam vet that was there. In fact, this kind of contamination gets passed on to future generations. Can you talk a little bit about the generational ex- uh, uh, consequences of this exposure in Vietnam? Well, like I said, our, our scientists with VBA and, and proven, you know, with, with different studies we've done that it's already in four generations. So that's not only my family, but, you know, the, hypothetically, if my son married your daughter mm-hmm. and she, she, you know, your 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 grandkids could also be affected by Agent Orange. So it's just, it's, it's unbelievable what that dioxin can do. And that that's a big concern of ours. It, you know, I don't, we don't know what, what to do. I mean, we're trying. There's presumptives out there. The VA is getting very good about helping us out with the presumptives, but there's there's going to be more that come. And same with the younger generation of veterans. You know, the burn pits and the depleted uranium. Mm-hmm. That's going to affect their their children later down the line too. Well, one of the things that worries me, and I don't mean to out you, but you are getting up there, Dan. And we're all getting older. And one of the the challenges that I see is that. Um, uh, you know, folks like you who actually um, make it your life's work to advocate for veterans. Um, we are the the veteran service organizations are getting older. Um, we don't seem to be recruiting young vets to take up that work. And I think about uh, Agent Orange. If it weren't for uh, the Vietnam veterans of America fighting for benefits, fighting for acknowledgement of this exposure, we wouldn't be where we are in at least giving some benefits and some recognition that this was uh, service-related injuries. How are we going to recruit more um, of our young veterans uh, into uh, veteran service organizations or at least into advocacy long-term so that um, they aren't left behind uh, going forward? I I think it takes time. I know I I probably went 15 to 17 years when I got out of the service where I never said the word Vietnam. And after 20, 21 years, I started thinking, well, maybe it isn't too bad to join a Legion club or a VFW. And it just it takes time. So I think it was 20-some years before I joined huh. anything. And once you get in there, then you find out it. I thought it was going to be very, very political, and you're talking about your your problems all the time. It's, it's not so much that. They're there to help, and it's a good brotherhood of good camaraderie that we have. They're all good. I think all the service organizations are good. You just got to get involved. But, the, you know, the younger generation, now they're working three or four jobs. Mm-hmm. They're young. They've got families. They're, they're attending their sports or they're taking them to swimming lessons or whatever. And it's just it's a time factor. Yeah, I think I think when you look at um, the the percentage of people who are served who are who have served, um, we see that percentage dwindling. And so, um, you know, there if if you can't recruit young people, it's going to get harder and harder to get 
awareness about some of these issues, these service-related issues that we don't think about, whether it's post-traumatic stress, whether it is exposure to the burn pits, whether it is, you know, um, just simply uh, making sure that uh, family caregivers are taken care of, whether service dogs are provided. And, you know, I, I, I just have so much respect for so many of our veterans in North Dakota who helped build the monuments and put together the programs both on Memorial Day and Veterans Day and um, who, who really um, remind people um, th- that your freedom isn't free. You, you, you owe a thank you to someone else for the ability to operate in this democracy. And so um, we're going to we're, we're going to keep uh, uh, working to get the Vietnam veterans understood and recognized, uh, keep uh, uh, appreciating their service. Uh, you see um, so many now uh, struggling. Uh, you know, my, my friend John McCain, who is um, right mm-hmm. now struggling with a life-threatening illness, obviously a, an amazing American hero. Um, you're a hero to me, Dan. I just uh, I appreciate so much your friendship, but more than that, that, I appreciate your advocacy because if I'm not if I'm not doing it right, you'll let me know. And and that that accountability that that you guys bring to elected officials is so important for not just yourself but for all of our veterans. I will tell the listeners to this podcast that North Dakota is one of the most uh, aggressive and progressive states on Agent Orange. There's only one reason for that, and that's you and your advocacy. And I'm constantly amazed that that you have held the legislature accountable and you have held those of us in Congress accountable and that you're not afraid to pick up the phone and fight for yourself, but also fight for everybody else who put on a uniform and fought for this country at a time when it wasn't real popular to do that. I, I got to give our accolades to our legislator because it, two sessions in a row, they gave us $50,000 grants to go for the uh, Agent Orange uh, education and outreach. And without that, I was spending probably 30000 or $20,000 out of my own pocket to do it on my own. But that helped so much. I mean, I just, without the state helping, we, we couldn't have done what we've done. And we've helped hundreds, if not thousands, of veterans in this state with the Agent Orange. And we've been to 34 counties, and we pretty much covered the state because a lot of the, the Agent Orange roundtables we had we're dual and triple counties that showed up. The veterans showed up, so we didn't have. Yeah. We don't have to make it to all the counties, but yeah, that's. I, we couldn't have done it without the help from the legislature. Yeah, and one of the things that we say here is that the cost of any war is not fully counted until every veteran of that war gets the services that they're entitled to. And that is the exactly. ongoing cost. Agent Orange is the ongoing cost of our freedom and the people who fought in, in Vietnam. And um, you have made that point. And I, I, I want to thank the legislature, too. But it, ha- it took, took a big guy going there telling him this is the right thing to do. And not a lot of people take that time to fight for, for everybody. Um, not just themselves. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dan, for your advocacy. Thank you so much for everything that you've done. And and most importantly, on the 4th of July, thank you for putting on that uniform, uh, serving us in the jungles of Vietnam, and coming home and continuing to serve your community and, and your veterans. Thank you, Senator. Take care. Thanks so much. Thank you. You thank bet. Thank you very much. Mm, bye-bye. I'm deeply thankful for both of my guests, 
Their effort to not let Vietnam slip from our memory is helping refocus our efforts to ensure that this era and all eras of veterans are cared for. As you celebrate the 4th, I hope you take a moment to reflect on the sacrifices of all those who served in Vietnam and made our country the great country that it is. Thank you for listening to this helping of the hot dish, and happy 4th to you and your family. 